0: welcome everybody to current events the only mocha podcast where we talk about current events it's current events with max and colborne but filling in for colborne today we have an incredibly special guest uh, mr matt cain joins the current events podcast today Matt Cain, how are we doing?
1: Max, I'm really happy to be here with you. I slept the full night last night, and I didn't need any kind of herbal supplement to help me sleep, and so I'm jazzed this morning.
0: I'm happy to hear that. Um, I hope to one day follow in your footsteps, but last night would not be the night. So it is 119 p.m. EST here on the East Coast. Matt is on the West Coast. I wanted to just kind of jump right in with... I guess, the most current event of the week, which is, Matt, you dropped a uh, rare past collection called contractual obligations this past week, and unless the people listening to this have been living under a rock, they've probably heard about it, they've probably seen a lot of the discourse. I'm just curious, how do you feel about the way people have taken this discussion to its like logical conclusion. I mean, it seems like so many people are taking this in so many directions, just as the person who put this out in the world. I mean, dominating the crypto news cycle for, or the crypto art news cycle for a day is a magnificent achievement. And it's, you know, contractual obligations has been on everyone's mind f- consistently for I don't know, better part of a week now.
1: Yeah, it seems like most people are um, doing what I suggested and staying in their seats and um, reserving judgment I, I don't know if that there's been anyone who hasn't reserved judgment so far and just staying tuned.
0: Staying tuned. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to uh, talk about contractual obligations, but obviously this is a current events podcast. So we got a lot more stuff. Let's come back to contractual obligations later. I want to get your opinion on our first current event of the week, which is this interest in early AI art that seems to be bubbling up from under the surface of super rare. I have seen Euromiron, I've seen Zaza, I've seen Bart Eynson works, like really early AI works from 2017, 2018, 2019 that have been minted on Super Rare, getting lots of attention. It seems like there is a subset of collectors that are making, I guess, their next big bet that this early AI art back when there were maybe dozens or hundreds of AI art pieces versus the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands now, that that's going to be where people are looking for future value. So what do you think about that? Um do you think that this is like a a good quote-unquote bet? Do you think that these pieces have the importance that collectors might seem to be imbuing
1: with them? I'm I'm very blessed, you know, to have just, you know, been in the space, you know, since early 2019. Some of the early pieces I collected like was from I think Bard Janssen was maybe the second artist I collected an NFT from. I mean, I think collectors are looking at this and they're saying, "Well, AI is has taken off like it to, to such a, to such a degree, um, it's, it's gone parabolic in terms of like the advancements. And of course it does. That's what technology does. That's what like network effect does, you know, and they're, they're understanding, like there is this like tiny little window of time where really genuine interest, you know, came into this and the aesthetics, the, the aesthetics were like true. Like it's not the aesthetics were not like, it didn't have like candy sweetness to it. Right. So those artists were actually like working through things and, and locating, you know, what the aesthetics can do. And they were really like playing with limited sets of tools where they, and that's to me, like, that was always super interesting. And I think, I think a lot of us like understood, like we're go- we're going to have really you know, heavy AI. I don't think we thought it would happen. Like it has, like, this has really been like the year that AI has like come out and become democratized to, uh, and with that, you know, that candy sweetness. Well, it's
0: interesting, right? The, the, uh, the these pieces that I've been seeing, right. Colborn and I were talking about this a bit last week, but he was mentioning uh, the slash R earth porn series uh, from Zaza, which, takes all of you know these um, Reddit posts of the most beautiful places on Earth and then put them into a data set and then create some kind of AI output from there. But the output is extremely choppy, right? Aesthetically, it's hard to really get a grasp on what you're looking at there. Same thing with those early Bard-Janssen pieces. Obviously, it uses AI, but aesthetically, I mean, compared to what you know, even a a novice first-timer with a Dali or with a mid-journey or, or a stable diffusion can put out now, aesthetically, it's completely, you know quote-unquote, inferior. And yet... It seems like, at least within this realm of early AI art, and that this applies back to like even Videodrome stuff, the actual aesthetics are so secondary to the means of creation. I mean, there was that whole, what was it, six months ago, you know, Videodrome appeared back in like the crypto art consciousness for a week where people were arguing about why these ugly, horrendous um, AI generated nude portraits were so sought after. So I'm curious, like, Why do you think that in this one kind of specific realm, the aesthetics are taking such a backseat to the historical provenance?
1: Could you repeat that question really quick? My ADHD is like... No, of course. It jumps in. So, like, with a lot
0: of these early AI pieces, the aesthetics are kind of choppy and unbeautiful, unclassically beautiful by nature. And yet there is a thirst for them in a way that there is not really generally a thirst for AI pieces now outside of like, um, you know, contractual obligations, which of course had this larger conceptual framework behind it. And, you know, people like Claire Silver, who has the context, the name, um, the consistent kind of like aesthetic framework. So I'm curious why you think in just this one tiny subset of crypto art, there seems to be a greater interest in the provenance and the context of creation than in the aesthetics.
1: Well, I hope they're actually going and looking at how the artists were working with, you know, and they were creating their own data sets. I have a piece from Bard Janssen um, in which in which he took all of these um, screen captures. It was um, 20. We're talking about 2018, 2019, and he's taking screen captures of um, Donald Trump, who is the president at the time, you know, from 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 news like CNN, all of these things. And he was he was creating his own data sets. Bard was, um, and you know, Bard is still working that way. And I was, um, you know, I've been I've been watching a because because I started my own you know uh, generative software in 2014, and I think it was like 2015, 2016 when Gan first you know came onto the scene, and it was extraordinarily um, seductive to me. There was there was like a month that I really was looking at it very deeply and closely, and had to assess, like, do I, do I pivot my path at this point? Because this, like this tech is like super of the now. Right. And when it came down to it, it was like, yeah, but it doesn't like, it doesn't agree with like this larger vision I have. Right. But it was still like super interesting to me. Um, so I was looking at artists like Mario Klingemann and Helena Saren, um, there's you know I'm, I'm i'm I, you know I mentioned those two names, but then I'm missing you know a dozen others and uh, but yeah you know i I hope that collectors who are taking interest in this actually like dive in and understand it's not that because sometimes i think I think they're speculating on just this is this is rare for this time or this is an ordinal with a number underneath one thousand and so yay but I think what like the content and substance of what these artists were working with, that's, what's, that's, what's valuable. Right. And I think what's rare about it is, is, is that this was new technology and these artists were all approaching it in their own unique ways. And they were commute, like they were genuinely, like there was, there was community, like Bard was working with Robbie's, you know, uh, GAN software. Um, and there was like, there was actually, you know, communication happening back and forth. And that's like, that's one of the beautiful things about that early AI right now, you know, it's like, um, gee, it's exploded and it's, it's, uh, (laughs) it is what it is. But, um, but back then it's like, you had to have real genuine interest and there was real camaraderie amongst those artists. That's really, you know, and that's really that's really beautiful and we're we don't have enough distance from it now to even to even like exclaim about those things but i've always just i've i've always sort of had um admiration for those artists
0: well there's a um i think there's an aspect of it uh, that's like and i think this applies to a lot of your work too i'm an unabashed fanboy of yours and also uh, specifically of gazers right like I, i was just with somebody yesterday and i was explaining crypto art to them and it's gazers is the one that i always bring out and i'm like you kind of get it now and there's a an aspect within a lot of your work of like the difficulty of landing the the trick right it's like Simone Biles even if you don't appreciate gymnastics in like the nitty-gritty way like just the difficulty of what she's executing is so obvious and I feel like perhaps that's the reason why a lot of this early AI stuff is so attractive because these people were creating their own data sets, they were working with technologies that were not really kind of
1: part of the mainstream, and were kind of everyone was left to their own devices to figure out. Mm-hmm. And there's there's such an element of curation to AI, right? Like I think that's one of the most the, 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 one of the strongest skills that that quote unquote AI artists need to have is is um curation and like a good eye like they have to ha- they have to have good taste not even good taste they have to have taste they have to have some sort of vision for what it is they're trying they're trying to describe or say express and i think that's what's that's what's like super interesting about about this early ai art is is that the tech the tech is able to, right and it's the same with what I'm doing with multitudes. The tech is able to create thousands of images, right? Within relatively short period of time. And, and it's really, it's the human eye and the human heart coming to that, that set of images that are produced. And that's saying this, this one here speaks to me and I think will speak to you. And that's, you know, that's where the human is coming in, is in the curation of it. You know, and and with Bado, that's like, and and they've like broadened that across a whole, you know, DAO community. You know, in terms of the the, the curation.
0: Well, it's it's interesting, like compared to say, gen- like a generative work that drops on art blocks, like Gazers, right, where the curatorial aspect is outside of what the artists the artist doesn't have a hand necessarily in the curatorial process because the piece is being generated in real time whereas with the ai art there is this element it's not just the taste in the composition it's the taste and then the selection from the grouping of compositions which you know it becomes it's, it's almost like people obviously we have this debate every couple of years or so about like is x art is y art and like the ai question is this art is so, I think, profoundly being debated in the hearts and minds of people who don't really exist in this space. And it's, I think, difficult to kind of translate that it's not just about creating the art, it's about creating all of this art and then deciding which of it actually like fits into the vision. If you don't mind talking a bit about process a bit, like when you were generating the uh, images for contractual obligations, did you start with many, many, many like outputs, and then kind of curate it down from there? Or did you have a vision for each of those 250 minutes before you went in?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, to answer that question is really to break the fourth wall. But what something that I heard is that we really need to blame Merv. Um, There's this gentleman, Merv, who I had retweeted on September twenty eighth, And he said, I can't wait to get a Matt Cain. And I said, what does getting a Matt Cain mean? And apparently, like September, like contractual obligations, it, you know, went out October 3rd. And I mean, apparently I got so pissed off on September 28th that <laughs> I, um, that I got on the phone and I called up the CEO of mid journey. And I said, how do I get a subscription? I don't know how to navigate this. I'm Matt Kane. I'm from Hollywood. How do I get on here? And so then, you know, in the course of because I had to get this to you know, super rare before October 3rd. So really in the course of about six hours, I created these 250 images. You know, I was just spitting fire because of Merv. So we need to, we need to remember to blame Merv.
0: Or thank Merv, depending on your uh, opinion. Is it, is it odd? So you dropped um, a project that is much more classically yours in terms of style? And I think in terms of you know, what people expect from a quote-unquote Matt Cain, which is like Anons and Multitudes. And that came out, um, I, forgive me if I get the dates wrong, but it seemed like the second week of September or so it was maybe like the 9th the 14th or something like that. I had an incredible reaction, right? People were really stoked about that project, but it didn't seem to dominate attention in the way that contractual obligations has. I'm curious just as an artist who in the span of in a very short time span created a work that's like, or released a work. That's very much a part of the identifiable Matt Cain, versus this other thing that is defying that, like experiencing that dichotomy of like attention and gratitude for one thing, but then, you know, a magnitude of opinions, controversy, um, Associations conversation for this thing that is defying yourself. Like, what has that experience been like?
1: Well, I mean, we're not through the whole performance yet, but it's been a weird week for sure. <laughs> I, I kind of think that uh, the thing that the thing that both works have in similarity is that you know all of my work is extremely layered, right? And I think we tend to think like we tend to think of my projects as being visually layered but they're not just visually layered they're conceptually layered and so i think like when we talk about style it's like when you know one of our last conversations i think like you brought up like we're just we're just inside of this brain and we're reaching out through these eyeballs you know experiencing yeah, we're, we're the world. a mass of
0: fat sitting inside a a bone cage and then we just have these little pieces of jelly that are experiencing the world for us
1: yeah and so i think i think to um to define style, right. And to understand substance it's, it's like, how can we, how can we only define style as like visual acumen? What else is like, what else is going on? Is there, is there anything beyond the visuals? Because if there's not anything beyond the visuals, it just seems, it just seems sugary to me. And uh, I like, I like to, I like substance. I like to, you know, provide a full, you know, four course meal or what have you. And (laughs) (laughs) so let me ask you another question. So I,
0: my heart has always been with narrative art, right? I was a film major in college. I'm obviously a a fiction writer. You know, I I love those kinds of art forms. And it seems like people who create narrative art are given a lot more mm, grace in pushing away from their own style. You know, whether that's like Kubrick with his one-off horror movie right doing The Shining or whether that's Scorsese doing um, Silence a couple years ago which is not a gangster movie it wasn't a crime movie it was about like monks or I think reformed monks in um, East Asia and it seems like with a lot of narrative artists and you know again writers and we'll call them filmmakers and just kind of leave it there there's a grace to challenge one's own style and there's almost an expectation that one's going to challenge one's own style and kind of move out of the boundaries of what they've explored thus far but then i think about more experiential art whether that's visual art or like music where you know people don't want bob dylan to go electric right (laughs) you know you you want to you want these artists to musicians to stay within their own style and kind of evolve slowly in a way that's understandable same thing with you with you know your kind of classic generative style very like color theory focused um and layered in the like contractual, um, like the smart contract versus something like contractual obligations, which is of course layered, but more in a conceptual sense. Like, Why don't you think these more, I'm, I'm going to co- kind of lump musicians and visual artists into this more like experiential art category, but why do you think there is this lack of grace generally afforded to experiential artists who are trying to break free from the things that have made them notable in the first place, quote unquote notable?
1: Yeah, well- if we if we really look at what we're talking about there it's the it's the difference but it's interpolation okay because i because i do animation i've become an animator with my generative software so it's really just interpolation and what i mean by that is you you have um a keyframe here at point zero then you have another keyframe here at point one okay Interpolation is 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 animating between these two keyframes. So you're going to you know point mm. zero one, point zero two, all the way up to one. So you mm. don't go zero one. You go you have thousands of frames in between those, right? Yeah. And I think that's how that's how we like to to think and in, in you know culturally we like to think in terms of narrative. We like to go smoothly across the surface, and it's interpolation. Uh, what glitch art, I, I think, I think like how Sotheby's has now defined glitch art, <laughs> right? Is that you get rid of some of those frames in between those. So it's very jarring, right? And so I think in terms of like, if we talk about like moving, moving into from one style to another, what I just did, perhaps that's jarring, right? Because we didn't have a smooth interpolation. And so is what I just did, is that glitch? Is it performance glitch? Well, it's an interesting point of view, but it's also like
0: the seeds, right? You you said before or just a couple moments ago that like everything you do is very layered. Thematically, there is a not just an association, but a parallel between contractual obligations and you know, your more classically quote unquote Matt Cain work. So I'm curious like why can't thematic resonance take the place of that, you know, interpolation between two keyframes? Or why is it so much harder for thematic reson- resonance to do so?
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's I do is is that for me to answer? Is it for the, you know, because because I'm not the one who's having difficulty with this.
0: Well, I think just in general, right? And I'm going to bring back up the um, the Scorsese point, right? Whether it's Wolf of Wall Street or yeah, um, sil- Silence, like these films are completely out of bounds of what is traditionally within what is considered the context of what this person is interested in the stories are interested in telling and yet there is a kind of thematic through line that you can trace now scorsese has been doing this for 50 years but when you become known you know a director like that who becomes known for crime films for gangster films um makes so many of them that are so acclaimed and then moves in a completely unstandard direction and had and had been doing so i guess uh, maybe that's unfair because there is interpolation there's movies like the aviator which is about howard hughes the business magnate but even still like it just seems like we are more willing to make that th- to go reading for that thematic relevance with narrative art that we aren't maybe with experiential art you know it, there was no desire when I'm, I'm, I'm projecting but when dylan went electric there was a widespread desire not to see this as a evolution or not to view these themes as evolving but that like one was a one timeline and one began a different timeline altogether. That wasn't a question. Yeah. And I know this is kind no, of like an ar- uh, arcane subject.
1: Uh, no. And I'm, this is, this is fantastic. You're bringing this up and I'm, I'm thinking about this very deeply, you yeah, know, and you brought up Kubrick and I'm a, I'm a big Kubrick fan and I'm, I'm quite sure that the shining wasn't received as well at first because it didn't no. fit. And I mean, for me, The Shining is one of my, my favorite films of all time. But Kubrick does that a lot, right?
0: It's like Barry Lyndon, one period piece. Then yeah. uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, one science fiction piece. You know, Eyes Wide Shut, one like erotic thriller piece. And it's like all these different genres. The eclect- eclecticism of his works is itself a kind of through line, but you can only kind of view that from a you know,
1: backwards perspective. Yeah. Why do people have a problem? I mean, gazers is performance. Is it not? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we like to talk about it in terms of being generative, but you know, it's, it's very layered what it is, what it can be called. I'm not even, I'm not sure. And you know, contractual obligations is a performance. When I, when I took the haystacks to Sotheby's and I listed in, in the, um, the traits that the auction house is the medium that was performance. And so if you like, you look at what I've been doing for a while, contractual obligations is not coming out of nowhere. And to put me in the context of rare pass, which is promising to cement legacies. I know I'm getting away from your original question. No, no, not at all. Um, There's no getting away. There's no getting away from this. You put me in the context (laughs) of uh something which is you know trying to bottle a revolution that I've very much felt is real and then this is what this is this is what becomes of it that's this is I make art I make you know and it's not just I make art I make art of the substance of the thing you know the the context from which you know I'm making art I did a I did a piece back in early 2020 It was January of 2020, so it's practically 2019, (laughs) but it's before the pandemic, certainly. (laughs) Um, So it's like ancient history here. Yeah, but Marble Cards reached out to me, and they were like, we're going to do... And Marble Cards is basically, like, the premise of Marble Cards is they allow for metadata of any website URL and... um, They pull in, you know, the the image URL from the metadata, kind of like a search engine does. And it creates, you know, this um, generative card, like from from that, uh, that you can collect as an NFT. And so they reached out to me and they're like, we're, you know, crypto art's really taking off. We're going to create like this little series of, you know, I think five or six artists. And, you know, would you like to be one of them? And my immediate thought was like, Hell yes, because this is gonna allow me to use, you know, a DAP as an artistic medium, right? And so I went ahead and and you know created a piece called Zero, uh, which which is uh, sort of <laughs> the, the pyramid structure you see on the back of a one dollar bill. And um and I linked that to moneyfactory.gov, which is which is of course like you know the treasury website. And so um um well it's the, the you know it's the engraving uh, the, the printing and engraving website right for the government so anyways that was me use you know it's it's basically you know there's just there's just a long history of me using the thing the context as part of the medium everything's been site specific which is kind of like and i and that that goes back to um something i kind of you know joke with like I'm, I'm, you know, I trained myself as a poet in my 20s, writing poetry every day, and so I can't. But what that did is it trained my um, neural connections and my own brain to think in terms of double meanings and stuff. So when I say site specific, it's kind of a, it was kind of a joke because it's kind of like, well, it's it's a website, site specific. But yeah, th- no, there's 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 a whole, you know, and I and I, I I can't even like I'm sure there's other instances, but but there's there's been so many instances where it's like contractual obligations, you know, is um it's it's just making um the implicit explicit.
0: This reminds me of um I'm thinking of an autonomous artifact piece that we have in the Genesis collection, um, which is just a symbol. It's a zero with a line through it. Um And it's just, the description is just a void on the blockchain. And it's, if you're looking on a a site or on a platform that has black screens standing in for emptiness, then it's a black screen. Other platforms, it's a white screen, but it's a nothingness. And the performativeness of that piece has always stuck with me. The idea of like, even just expecting an artwork to be where an artwork normally is. And instead you're getting something that is unabashedly nothing and is purposefully absent of the only thing that you're expecting in that space um there's that it I makes the rounds every now and again but i don't remember the artist but um it was just a blank canvas and the title of the piece was yeah uh, take yeah, the money I and run that. yeah i heard i will find the artist in a, in a sec but i think the piece was sold for twenty thousand dollars and people are like it doesn't make any sense to me and it's like yeah but it's it's the same issue of like the same question of expectations versus reality and expectations of what this thing is, and within
1: that, how free is an artist to really express themselves, right, and do contractual obligations. So so such as in that piece um, that that artist created, like he's just been, you know, ruled by a court that he has to return the money to the to the museum. And he says, if I return, you know, the money to the museum, then it's no longer art, which I think is really true.
0: Jen's haunting, by the way, is the artist's name. Sweet.
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it, it, it brings up questions about when you enter into these agreements as, as an artist, you know, cause it makes me think cause, cause, you know, a short time ago I was um, building websites for people and I was, I was a independent contractor doing that. And it's like, if, if I didn't provide what, what the client wanted. Sometimes, you know, I was providing what the client wanted, but sometimes it was like, let we want to shift the add to cart button, two pixels to the left. And then it was, Oh, let's shift the add to cart pixels, you know, two pixels to the bottom, you know, it, you know, it's, it's like this iterative process when you engage with a client who's, who's, who's created an order, right. It's essentially an order. And so when you're an artist and you're fulfilling an order, it's um it's like how fr- how how free are you right and when we're talking about um blockchain and <laughs> the crypto art revolution i think there's there's an essence of freedom um for the artist uh and also for the collector um for the collector to choose right and so if we're we're eliminating freedom right from it's, it's just it's just an interesting question to pose. So you said you, uh, before we started that you didn't listen to the podcast
0: I did this week with Ezra Shibboleth um, because you were worried worried that we were going to talk about contractual obligations. Um, and we did a little bit, but one of the things that we had come to was that like, and I'm curious, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but you can only do this conceptual expectation thing once, right, as Matt Cain, because from here becomes- on out- people are going to have been yeah right you can no longer defy your own expectations if part of that expectation is that your expectation is going to be defied so while that's freeing it's also somewhat limiting right you chose this
1: moment to make this performative you know expectation defying statement i I was talking to my niece because she this has been a weird week and i'm and i'm trying to you know (laughs) take it all in but at the same time i'm trying to keep some distance from it and uh, But I, I spoke to my niece, and my niece listened to this, I guess it, it was some sort of a Twitter spaces, and um, they were talking all about contractual obligations and stuff. And her big takeaway was, was that the discussions that are happening around this work are perhaps freeing artists to think differently or to consider their, their, their place and what they, they can do and and what maybe limits they are within and what limits they don't have to be within. That's what she, that, that's sort of the essence of what she told me, which, which made me feel proud. If, if I've limited my own, <laughs> if I've cut off my own freedom of breaking expectations again in the future, I think it's a worthwhile thing to do so long as it creates this discussion that perhaps, you know, makes us, Question things or think differently, or or even um, you know if an if an artist has has been feeling confined and has been feeling like under the threat of uh, you know collectors' expectations and these sorts of things, if if they now, as a result of me making contractual obligations, questions that and makes different work as a result, then then that's really worth limiting myself in the future although i don't think it does limit myself in the future i just think that it it um it it creates the somersaults a little more creative and difficult in the future if anything
0: so let's uh, uh this is a great segue into a different current event that i wanted your take on which is the moma postcards which we discussed last week with Colborn, but have now been like revealed as the sequence of 15 pixelated artworks that were sent uh between 15 artists from kind of around the world, all kind of like crypto native artists. You know, when Colburn and I first talked about this, it was very much in praise because the list of artists that were involved was not kind of the classical list that seems to always be in the hands of Christie's and Sotheby's, the same, you know, 20, 30 artists who are getting um, pushed into the limelight. But since then, right, with the reveal of these postcards, talked about expectations, right? Right the use of terminology, whether it's Web3, NFTs, crypto, etc., seem to have been a, uh, a smokescreen for something that does not really have any connection with Web3 at all, right? These pieces are not mintable as far as I'm aware. Um, they do not display the artist styles. They don't really interact with any kind of smart contracts, at least not that I've seen. And I'm curious, like the expectation, at least on my part, that MoMA was going to break a ground in the world of Web3 crypto art, whatever you want to call it, was met with, uh, that expectation was defied because it seemed like instead of MoMA inserting itself into Web3, MoMA kind of took some Web3 and brought it to a more, or I guess a less individualized landscape. There was a bit of discussion online that I saw about this um, with the disappointment at which, the disappointment with which this actually interacted with web three technology, web three values. I'm curious if you have opinions on that, if you
1: I um, I visited their website, and I read through everything. And I'm very confused. I they, they, they had a little sign up button. And so I put several emails in there. So that I have an adequate opportunity <laughs> to participate. But I don't actually understand what it is I'll be participating in the fact that I'm entering my email. And I'm not um, logging in and making a transaction with my MetaMask account already. It that's a Web 2 technology that they're using to sign people up. Even if we move to Web 3, this is this is perhaps a violation of you know Web Web 3 ethos because we're giving up our emails.
0: I had to unsubscribe from the newsletter that I had inadvertently signed up for by putting my email in as well. So I was like, I don't actually want. Yeah, but I was
1: also I was also confused. And it and it and it created more questions for me. Like, what is this actually going to be? What do I get? You know, what do I get to do? Uh, I'm 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 like I'm still open minded. Like, maybe this is going to be like I get to go like to my own pixel grid, and everyone in the world will get to go to their own pixel grid and make something. And because I was assuming that's like that's the point of using pixels is because like that you know a ten by ten pixel grid with limited colors that makes it very easy to actually encode that, you know, to the blockchain, you know, cheaper than not. But I would say that uh, if there, if, if the, I don't really, I don't really know what the project is. They haven't like made abundantly clear to me how the public is interacting with this. I know that how the 15 artists did this, and it seemed very academic to me. It seemed very like one of my ex-girlfriends was, was a, a dancer and performer And so, so I got, you know, it it seemed very much like an improvisational, you know, activity, um you know myself as a former art teacher it reminded me of of doing exquisite corpses with the students where we fold a paper in four and then you know we we draw the top of someone's head and we pass it on to the next person they draw the next thing you know it's a very much it's it's very much in line with you know these these sort of like academic improvisational techniques that that are done you know and, and even in comedy right uh so 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 it felt very much in line with that. I hope that it's um, it's going to interface with Web three, and I hope that um, that the whole world gets to you know because that's what you know that's an ethos of Web three as as well. Crypto art, if they're going to summon the name of crypto art, is um, you know allow the whole world to be able to you know get in here and make you know make make pixel art. You know, otherwise it's like web three does have, you know, already a project where you can go make pixel art, you know, and some of the OGs like Xcopy and Hackatao and even myself. Um, you know, we've 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 used we've used that tool and we've you know and so it's it's like there's nothing stopping the whole world from, you know, coming into it and just using that tool if MoMA isn't gonna open the doors.
0: Yeah, maybe they will have inadvertently opened the doors by way of sheer disappointment. <laughs> So when I asked you about current events, you said you, uh, wanted to talk about your relationship to candy and a token called
1: money sign
0: candy. And I did, I I did a light amount of research and reflecting that I, I kind of just want to give the floor to you. Like, what is candy? What is your relationship to candy? Why this, um, why this association?
1: So thanks for asking the question. Um, giving me the floor to basically <laughs> explain.
0: I made you wait, I made you wait 42 minutes before I asked you the question you wanted to be asked.
1: Yeah, so it's just a good time to to discuss that. there was there is someone in the one of the discords that spotted a tweet that I made, I think in 2021 where I said something like uh, a chocolate bar is fine, but I like to serve you know a main course meal. And it's interesting for myself, because in 2021, I'm not saying that and thinking like two or three years later, I'm going to do this and there's going to be a project with candy. It just comes down to my essence of like how I think about candy. It's like it's cheap fuel. Right. And it's um, it really doesn't provide any sort of sustenance.
0: A couple of years ago, I was I don't I don't remember where I was, but I was somewhere where I had expended a tremendous amount of energy in a day and I was extremely hungry. And I was like, you know what I need? A Snickers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, the marketing has actually worked and has actually convinced me that being hungry, <laughs> what I should eat is this candy bar. You're not. Ma- <laughs> like, that's not going to make me feel Max better. You're not Max when you're hungry. You're Min. <laughs> yeah. Until I have a Snickers. I'm a baby Ruth guy myself, but
1: you uh, get the point. Um, Please continue. Anyway, when I, so when I was a child, I would go trick or treating with all my friends and I would collect a pillowcase full of candy and sometimes two pillowcases. I would be out, you know, from the time we're let out of school all the way, you know, to, you know, 1030, <laughs> 1130. Um, <the> parents <laughs> are turning on the porch lights. Um, anyway, I would go trick or treating. Right. Max, I've, I've spoken with you before. Public, I haven't spoken to you before. I was not allowed to eat the candy. I was going trick-or-treating. Max, that makes sense to you. Public, that doesn't make sense to you. And I'm not going to explain why to you right now. But this is suffice to say is that these were Chicago October 31sts. They weren't all always like, you know, (laughs) summery nights. They were grueling cold, some of them, and wet. But I was still out with my friends having a good time collecting this candy. And, you know, at the end of the night, I gave my candy away to all my friends. They loved it, you know. October would come and Matt Kane was the guy, you know, to, you know, be friends with because you're gonna get, you know, extra sacks of candy from this guy.
0: Shitload of candy. You
1: (laughs) You know, there's a lot of reasons why this token is called candy. But, you know, in terms of like my unique experience in this world, you know, and to speak about like what my relationship to candy is in the month of October. You know, we can't get away from the fact. I think that Halloween is one of these holidays where children, especially in America, probably learn to have some entitlement, you know, where you go door to door and, and you're, you're, you're being given free candy and you learn as a child will go into the rich neighborhood because they'll, they give whole chocolate bars. They give, they'll just, and they'll just take a bag of, you know, the Nestle crunches. They'll just rip them open. And, you know,
0: yeah. You know, it's like the tiny little Reese's mm-hmm. cups that are wrapped in foil versus yeah. the big long packages and that beautiful orange. And so it's gratifying. almost,
1: it's almost like some of those houses giving out candy. They'd give, they would definitely give out more candy to the cooler costume. Right. And like, and that's just surface level costume stuff, right? That's just how how the kids are dressing up, and how their you know how their level of privilege allows them to dress up, or how their creativity allows them to dress up, right? And so um, there's just something there's a really interesting relationship between I think Halloween um, and you know our feelings of entitlement you know, going and getting free candy um, versus my experience of Halloween, which was going, getting candy and then giving it away. And I think,
0: so yeah, I did not learn
1: entitlement from Halloween, you know, I and and some of these friends that I gave this free candy to, it's like they wanted to be cool in high school and I was nerdy. <laughs> and so, you know, we, they, they, uh, they ceased being friends with me. So it's, you know, it's just, there's, there's this, there's this very interesting, you know, meaning for myself with, with giving out candy in the month of October. You're not a, you're not the rich neighborhood giving out the big chocolate
0: <laughs> bars. What was the last year you went trick-or-treating? Like how old were you when you finally were like, I can't I'm glad you're do asking anymore.
1: that. I think it was around sixth grade or seventh grade. It was yeah it was like i'm kind of like it was like this is this has actually become kind of depressing that i'm going out and and these winters are these, these <laughs> halloweens are so cold and i'm giving away my candy at the end of the night um so i was actually like that brought out the gesture in me so i would go and i would um i would put on my dad's big flannel and i would stuff it full of newspaper and then i put on one of these masks and i put you know a chair out and I would, like, prop myself up as if I'm a scarecrow, right, um, on on my parents' front porch. And then I would have in my lap, you know, <laughs> a thing and then and, and, and with a little sign <laughs> that says, free, take one. And that was kind of like my, that became my little thing that I did for a couple years is that I would, I would pretend to be a scarecrow. And then if someone took more than one, I would go Ooh, and, you know, and, <laughs> and scare the kids. Right. Expectations. You you expect that I'm a scarecrow, but I'm not.
0: I'll tell you a a similarly ridiculous story about Halloween. So when I was like 14 or 15, I ran with this crew of like rapscallions and uh, we had a a Six Flags near us in New Jersey. And I had bought, uh, do you know what a morph suit is? It's like a full body spandex suit, essentially like head to toe. And we went to Great Adventure and we put on, had our morph suits, a couple of us underneath our clothes And then we went in the bathroom, we zipped it up. So, you know, our whole bodies were covered and we sat very still in, on one of the benches, you know, they do this like fright fest thing. So the whole park, it's like Halloween themed. And we sat there very still and people would walk by and we would jump out and scare them. And it was very childish and it was very fun until the park security came over to us and we're like, Hey, this is a, I'll never forget. He says, this is a ghoul free zone. You can't be doing that here. (laughs) Those are his words. Not like, hey, dipshit kids, like you can't do that. It's like, no, the problem is that this is a ghoul-free zone, and we don't allow ghouls. And he like walked us to the bathroom, and he, you know, waited outside as we took off our costumes. And I don't know if that is really the thematic resonance that your story has, but ghoul-free zone.
1: No, but that's you know that's a <laughs> that's an awesome. That's when react. I stopped trick or treating.
0: Yeah. I don't want to talk about
1: any times I might've gone out after that. The bet, the best time, let me just talk about the best time though. The best time I was like seven or eight years old and I was going out with my older brother and, and his friends, they were five years older than me and um, a couple of my friends as well. And we had, we had collected lots of candy and then we were, we were crossing through this, this field behind the school and um beneath these like big high tension wires so you hear you know the crackling you know Mm -hmm. and it's dark and then all of a sudden like at the end like probably it's it's this long field super long field so probably two blocks down three blocks down we see all of a sudden like these like silhouettes these shadows approaching us Mm -hmm. you know and then they start running towards us and they're yelling, Give us your candy. And they were high school kids, like they were big silhouettes. And so we started running. They were throwing eggs at us. And I remember <laughs> my my uh my one of my brother's friends caught the egg. He caught the egg. No and then way. he whipped it back at them and nailed one of them in the face, you know. Goodness, it was goodness. like and then we were like running even faster and we we like finally found a, you know, a yard where we can hop the fence and, you know, mm. get to the, get to the main drag. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with anything except fun. Uh, the <laughs> exhilaration fun of that moment,
0: man. Yes. It is fun to be scared. Um, well, I've, uh, I feel like I've taken up enough of your time anyway. It's about 52 minutes to our podcast, Matt. I'm going to let you uh, finish us off with any last thoughts, any, any last things you want to share before we get out of here.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I I don't think I have any, you know, I think just I think everyone's having a good time, right? Staying in their seats and they're free not to stay in their seats. And that's the most important thing, you know, that's all. All right. Well,
0: we hope you stay in our your seats long enough to uh, listen to the end of this podcast. Matt, I really appreciate you coming on and talking today. Thanks for uh, shooting the shit about some current events with me. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com. Look us up on Twitter. Matt Kane is at Matt Cain Artist on Twitter as well. If you haven't heard of him, you better fucking start hearing about him. And I hope it was nice hearing from him. Matt, once again, thank you so much for being here. And we'll uh, see everyone on Friday with a new Mocha Live. Thanks, Max. My pleasure. Take care, everybody. Thanks for being here. A huge thank you to Matt Cain for stepping in for Colborne for the Current Events podcast this week. Huge thank you to Julian Brangold for composing our intro and outro music. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen, and we will see everyone real soon. Thanks for being with us.